Exodus 21 and then in 1 Corinthians 7. In Exodus 21, it's dealing with a husband uh, who takes a second wife and then he begins to neglect uh, the first wife that he had. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is addressing a case of desertion, of an unbeliever physically separating, leaving his believing spouse. And you might be wondering, why are we looking at these two passages alongside of one another? Well, I hope that will become clear um, as time goes on. But up front, I just want to say we're looking at both of these passages because I am I'm convinced that Paul is applying a principle found here in Exodus 21 to the case of physical desertion in 1 Corinthians. But as I hope we'll see and understand, the principle found here in Exodus 21 has more far-reaching implications for how we as Christians who want our thinking to be subject to the Word of God, how we as Christians think about the issues of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Uh, So let's go ahead and take up the reading, giving attention to the hearing of God's word, first of all, in Exodus 21, 10 and 11. If he, that is the husband, takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does... Uh, not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. And then uh, flick forward to our text in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 16. Paul says, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, addressing a situation that Jesus himself did not address directly during his earthly ministry. To the rest, I say that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Uh, Two hangers on which to hang everything we're going to be thinking about today. Number one, we're going to consider the Old Testament background to Paul's teaching by looking at Exodus 21. And then we're going to consider the specific situation that Paul addresses in Corinth. So let's start with the first thing, the Old Testament background to Paul's teaching. Again, the situation in Exodus 21 is when a husband stops caring for his wife. When a husband stops providing for her, stops feeding her, clothing her, stops loving her, 
He takes care of himself, but not her. He clothes himself, but neglects her. He loves himself, but not her. Uh, And so when a husband may not only neglect her, but even more maliciously use her, and as is often the case, oppress her financially, control her, humiliate her, disregard her needs, ignore her heart, exploit and despise her. This text is saying when a woman is consistently mistreated in a marriage, this passage at the most basic level is teaching us, first of all, God cares. God cares about that. The basic principle of verses 10 and 11 is this. When a husband diminishes the food, clothing, or marital rights of his wife, when he stops caring for her, what God says is loud and clear. She's free. She's free to leave. She no longer has a responsibility to him. She can go out owing him Nothing, and the responsibility for the dissolution of the marriage lies with him. Now, as an aside, some of you might be wondering, well, what if it's the other way around? Does this principle apply if it's the wife who persistently refuses to keep her marriage vows? And I think the principle does apply the other way. However, this passage focuses doesn't it, on the unique responsibilities of the husband. And we're going to maintain that focus for a number of reasons today. Going a little bit further, though, the the context here in Exodus 21 is is slavery. Uh, The goal of these two verses and the surrounding verses in this chapter is to protect those who are in vulnerable positions. Uh, The specific situation here is a former servant turned spouse. One of the ways that God cared for people within Old Covenant Israel who ended up in servitude was that they could could marry into the family. And and in that way, uh, they could have everything that they needed with, along with all of the rights and the privileges of being a member of that family, no longer counted a slave. And that's the situation here, a former servant turned spouse. And the husband in view is a man who has married one of his servants, but then he took another wife and began to ignore and stop providing for and cease loving his first wife. Now, we need to do just a little bit of ground clearing and then get to what we really want to focus on today. Let's just say this up front. This is, this is not scripture condoning polygamy. I've heard some people suggest that about this passage. Israel, Israel you remember, already has God's blueprint for marriage in Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one Flesh. There's God's expressed will for marriage. Actually, I think this verse is showing the inevitable sinfulness of polygamy. A husband with two wives will invariably care about the one and end up neglecting the other. It's exposing the fact that straying from God's design always leads to further and greater sin. 
Now, with, with that being said, I want us to focus on the universal principle contained in these two verses. Put a different way, the principle is that God forbids all husbands everywhere from forsaking, from neglecting, and from abusing their wives. And if he does so as a habit, as a mark of the marriage, she's free. She's free to go. Now notice, notice the three things required of the husband in verse 10. Uh, The first is food, the idea here being provision. The second is clothing, uh, the basic idea of, of shelter, of protection, physical protection, I think, is in view here. A husband is to provide and to protect, to, to nurture and to guard, recalling, I think, Adam's own responsibility within the Garden of Eden with respect to the garden itself, as well as Eve um, within the garden. So a faithful husband, he he won't neglect his wife, he will provide for her, he won't turn against her, he will shelter and protect her. And then thirdly, verse 10 speaks of marital or conjugal rights. Now certainly this speaks to the, the issue of sexual intimacy. But sexual intimacy isn't all that is in view here because Sexual intimacy in the world of the Bible does not ever stand by itself. It includes uh, love and care for one's spouse, of which sexual intimacy is the ultimate expression. And so as we're reading these three categories of, of, uh, of food and clothing and marital rights, I don't think they're meant to be read in a wooden fashion so long as uh, you know, you're putting food on the table, providing clothing, and ever so often engaging in physical intimacy, you can check off the boxes. That's not what is intended by this passage. You can't have sexual intimacy as God designed it without a relationship marked by love. And so marital rights includes, I believe, the exclusive love commitment of a husband for his wife. And then notice what the text says. When a husband fails consistently to care for his wife in these ways, when this failure is the pattern of his life, the pattern of the marriage, when he willfully fails to provide for, protect, and love his wife, God says she is free. Free to go. So I think this is certainly a message for women who are not provided for by lazy, selfish, and unreliable men. It is a message for women who, instead of being safe in their home, instead find it to be a place of oppression. It is a message for women who find themselves in a loveless marriage where the husband checked out a long time ago and refuses as a pattern of life to render the debt of love that is owed within marriage. And the message to such women from God is, I care for you. You're free. You do not have to remain bound to a husband who is intent 
on neglecting and harming you. Now let me just say this loud and clear. This is not God taking marriage lightly. This is not God saying marriage can just be set aside, tossed away willy-nilly as if it's some sort of insignificant thing. No, marriage is of supreme importance. It is a sacred thing. It is the bringing together of two as one flesh by God himself. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And because God takes marriage so very seriously, he will not tolerate the behavior of husbands who effectively abandon their marriage vows and neglect or abuse their wives. And so verses 10 and 11 teach us that if a husband fails to provide, protect, and care for his wife, if in fact he does the opposite, if he neglects, harms, or despises her, we're learning that God cares and that she is not bound. She is free. Now we'll get what, to what this, you might be thinking, what does this have to do with 1 Corinthians? We'll get to what that has to do, this has to do with 1 Corinthians in just a moment. But I do think, I do think we should pause and recognize that these verses speak to a widespread problem in our own day, the, the dark reality of domestic abuse. Uh, it has been referred to as a silent epidemic because it is so widespread, so common in our society, and sadly far, far too common within Christian families. Current statistics say that one in four women one in four women will experience some form of domestic abuse in their lifetime from a family member. 25%. I haven't done a head count of how many women are with us today, but that's staggering to think about how many here have experienced it. Despite its prevalence even among Christians, though, it's, it's rarely spoken about. And as a result, I think many Christians, women, and men as well today are left wondering, does the Bible speak to my own lived reality? Does the Bible have anything to say to those who have been abused by their spouse? Now sadly, here's what I think often happens. Many Christians who sincerely want to be faithful to the Lord are told that a passage like 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10, applies directly to their situation. That's where you'll remember from last week where Paul said, a wife ought not to divorce her husband and a husband ought not to divorce uh, his wife. Divorce is not an option, period, end of story, end of discussion. But as we saw last week, if, if we're going to understand and apply Paul's charge there faithfully to Christians, we have to consider the context of what Paul is dealing with and, and understand it in harmony with the rest of the teaching of the Bible. So to say that Paul's charge is an absolute one without any further qualification, at the very least, runs the risk of 
neglecting the context of groundless divorce by separation that was so prevalent in the Greco-Roman world of that day. And it conflicts, if you follow through with that, this, that this is an absolute charge without any qualification, it ends up conflicting with the rest of the teaching of Scripture. Because it was Jesus himself in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 who recognized one exception, uh, the issue of sexual immorality. And it's Paul himself in the passage we're going to consider today who recognizes another kind of exception to that general charge. Nevertheless, many who have suffered from domestic violence are told, no, Paul's words here apply to your situation. And as a result, they're consigned to neglect, harm, and a loveless marriage. The very opposite of what God designed marriage to be. And so again, the question, does the Bible address cases of domestic abuse in marriage? I think, I think it does. I think the principle in Exodus 21 speaks very helpful, helpfully to this dark and lived reality. Now, to, to show you how I think it does that, I want you to just listen this morning to some standard definitions of domestic abuse. And I want you to notice how the opposite of those things is being outlined here in Exodus 21. Domestic abuse certainly includes physical violence. Right? If you physically harm your spouse, you're, you're not sheltering or protecting her. You're doing the opposite this can involve uh, hitting, shoving, pushing, throwing objects at the victim, hurting children, or breaking things in front of them to communicate, this is what I can do to you if you cross me. But standard definitions of domestic violence go beyond physical violence, though we need to understand they inevitably always have physical effects on the victim. And so intimidating, uh, constantly shaming, humiliating, twisting words, putting, putting you down, controlling who you see, where you go, who you're allowed to spend time with, shifting responsibility, what we call blame shifting, saying, uh, it's really your fault that I got so mad and did that to you. Uh, failing to provide can manifest in different ways, can it? It can manifest in the form of Financial oppression, right? the withholding of money, uh, denying access to financial records, running up debt in your spouse's name. It can extend to the area of sexual intimacy. Sexual assault can occur within marriage. Sexual abuse within marriage is a far more common problem than any of us would like to think. I know somebody, no, not referring to anybody who's connected or has been connected to this church in the past. I know somebody who, who did some of these things to his spouse. He would, he would consistently lie or deny the truth to his family members. And the result is his, his wife just started to feel like she was going crazy. She didn't know up from down, left from right. She, could, she lost the ability to, to make decisions the reality that he would present to his family and wife was so backwards and upside down that she really didn't know what was going on. 
And it would, it would be over the most trivial things. One day he would say something, and the next day he would say, no, I didn't say that. Yes, you did. You did say, no, that, those words never came out of my mouth. And you have to ask, why? Why? Of course, it was all about control. It was all about manipulation to cause her to doubt herself and her perception of reality, and ultimately to cause her to doubt her own feelings about the abuse that she was experiencing within the marriage. But with that list of types of domestic abuse in mind, set alongside of the responsibilities of the husband in Exodus 21, do you see, do you see how all of them are the exact opposite of what is required biblically of the husband? A husband is to provide, protect, and love his wife, and if he doesn't, if he refuses to do it, if he consistently fails to do it, God says to the wife, I care for you, you are free to go, you owe him nothing. Now, I am keenly aware of the fact that what I am saying this morning might just be a little controversial among some Christians today. Because I think so many have been taught a particular understanding of marriage that says divorce is never permissible for the Christian. But all I want to say at the start here is, friends, if we are committed to submitting our convictions to the Bible, then we need to be willing to go where the Bible goes. We need to be willing to have even some of our dearly held convictions challenged by Scripture. And for many Christians, the the default approach, I think, and you can challenge me later if you think I'm wrong about this, but the default approach when it comes to marriage, marriage conflict, is save the marriage at all costs. Save the marriage at all costs. That's how many counselors and pastors are trained to approach issues. Save the marriage at all costs. And again, to be clear, we want marriages to last. I am not saying that Christians can leave if their spouse is not perfect. If that were the case, none of us should be married because we are called to love a fellow sinner. So no marriage is going to be easy or perfect. But I want us to see that God himself does not say, save the marriage at all costs. What he is saying in Exodus 21 is protect the woman at all costs. Save the vulnerable at all costs. Protect those who have been subject to neglect and cruelty at all costs. And God wants us to see that he himself will protect her. That's why he gave this law to Israel. So who are we? Who are we to deny a provision that God himself has given in his word to those who have endured cruelty and neglect within marriage? You see, there is regulation in the word of God to provide and protect a woman who needs to be sheltered and guarded even if the cost is the dissolution of the marriage. And so it says in verse 11, if the husband fails to do these things for her, 
She shall go out for nothing without payment or money. She's innocent. Doesn't mean that she's sinless or perfect. But she she has sought to be faithful and loving and committed to the relationship. And her faithfulness and her love and her commitment to the marriage has been met with neglect and hatred. God says she owes him nothing. She is not under bondage. She is no longer a slave. She is free. Now, in the Reformed tradition, we recognize biblically and confessionally two reasons for divorce. One, Jesus outlines in a passage like Matthew 5, Matthew 19, uh, sexual immorality. The other, our confession calls willful desertion, which is most often associated with a passage like 1 Corinthians 7, where the Apostle Paul addresses a situation of an unbelieving spouse deserting the marriage, physically separating. But it is almost certain, I think, that Paul has Exodus 21 in mind when he penned 1 Corinthians 7. And that has important implications for us. Let me try to show you why I think that. Look at what he says, first of all, in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15. Paul says, But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. That's interesting, isn't it? Why... Why the use of the language of, of slavery? That's really, that's really strange. Referring to marriage as slavery is really odd because the Bible does not describe marriage in those terms. Paul never does, except here. So why would Paul refer to the marriage relationship as a form of slavery, as if remaining committed to the relationship is a kind of slavery? Well, almost certainly because the Old Testament reference that Paul has in mind here is Exodus 21, which was written for wives who have been neglected by their husbands in the context of servant-turned-spouse. And earlier in 1 Corinthians 7, you remember when Paul spoke about the conjugal or the marital rights of both the husband and the wife, Exodus 21, once again, is surely in view. And later in the chapter, when Paul says that a married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, it's it's very likely, scholars suggest, that the worldly things he has in view here are the three things outlined in Exodus 21.10, food, clothing, and marital rights. And so Paul is relying on Exodus 21 throughout this section of 1 Corinthians 7. But you can see a further and I think deeper and more significant connection between these texts when you realize that the core issue in both passages is one's refusal to keep one's marriage vows. That's the core issue in Exodus 21 and it's the core issue in 1 Corinthians 7. Seven. The husband in Exodus 21 has made that clear that he is abandoning the marriage to, by failing consistently 
to provide, protect, and to love. The spouse in 1 Corinthians 7 makes it clear by separation. But an abandonment of the marriage and its obligations is the core issue connecting these two texts. And so Paul is looking to Exodus 21 to form his argument for allowing for the dissolution of a marriage in the case of desertion in 1 Corinthians 7. And if that's the case, as I'm convinced that it is, then the biblical principle of desertion is not, cannot be limited to an unbeliever who physically separates never to return. But some limit the application of willful desertion in precisely that way. They say that, that, uh, that the application of willful desertion is limited to an unbeliever physically deserting the marriage only then, only then is a believer free to consider divorce. But I wonder if you see the problem with that reading at this point. The problem is the Bible doesn't limit the issue of desertion to physical abandonment. Exodus 21, if we're going to consider it in terms of willful desertion, is about a husband remaining in the home, but refusing and failing to keep his marriage vows. And it says, the wife is not under bondage, she is free. She's free to go. So we need to realize that Paul is applying a biblical principle to a specific situation in Corinth, but the application of the principle of desertion is not limited to the specific circumstance in Corinth. I think this has been recognized in the Reformed tradition, our own tradition, through the years, but for, I think, historical reasons, is often overlooked today. Just listen to a few quotes. I don't usually read quotes to you, but bear with me for a minute. First, these are words from Theodore Beza, Calvin's successor in Geneva. Beza actually wrote an entire book on divorce theory. And in it he says, we know him to be a deserter who does not refuse cohabitation, but obstinately demands impious conditions. To depart from someone and to drive the other away by threats or force are the same thing. If the faithful spouse does not care, as is right that the faithful spouse is in peril, no one does not see, I think, not only that he is the deserter, but also that he may be shunned with a good conscience as a traitor. Those are strong words. And before Beza, John Calvin himself, commenting on Exodus 21, wrote, A husband cannot neglect his marital obligations and lawfully keep his wife. God commands that she should be set free. A little later, William Perkins, uh, English Puritan. Like desertion uh, is malicious and spiteful dealing of married folks. Malicious dealing is when dwelling together, one requires of the other intolerable conditions. 
And William Ames, another influential uh, theologian in our tradition, writes, if one party drives the other away with cruelty, there is cause for desertion, and he is to be reputed the deserter. And so I, I read those off to you so that you understand biblically, confessionally, and historically, though there has been debate for sure, the Reformed tradition, some within it at least, recognized that the ground of desertion applies to more than physical desertion. According to Exodus 21, the Bible's teaching on desertion includes the kind of separation that, that can and does sadly occur when a spouse remains in a home but persistently and willfully neglects his or her marriage vows. I think the Bible's teaching, therefore, directly addresses situations where a husband may very well be content to remain at home and wish to remain married because it benefits him, but fails to provide, fails to protect, fails to love. And if that happens, if it has become a consistent pattern, if the relationship has been shattered by regular, consistent neglect or cruelty or failure to love, God says, I care, you are not enslaved, you are free to go. And so that's the Old Testament background to, to Paul's teaching. Now with the little time I have left, very briefly, let's consider the specific situation Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians 7. I can't actually see the clock, so who knows what time it is. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 16. Uh, it, it seems that some of the members of the church at Corinth were, were already married when they became Christians. Right? And... Uh, they, they were converted, but their spouse remained unconverted. And some of them were thinking that my spouse not knowing Jesus is grounds for divorce. My being married to an unbeliever is surely going to be a pollutant. It's going to contaminate my relationship with the Lord. If I'm really going to be holy, then I need to get a divorce. Some of the Corinthians were thinking that way. But notice Paul's reply in verses 12 and 13. If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And verse 13 is vice versa. It works the other way too. So if he or she is an unbeliever and wants to remain married, Paul is saying, let it be so. You don't have to divorce your unbelieving spouse in order to be a faithful Christian. So don't divorce your unbelieving spouse who consents to live with you. And we might say, okay, why, Paul? What's the rationale behind that? And it's interesting. His rationale is simply, they are holy because of you. And he extends that not only to the unbelieving spouse, but to the children within the home. In verse 14, the unbelieving husband is made holy because of the wife. The unbelieving wife is made holy because of the husband, otherwise your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. There is a kind of holiness that extends uh, to the marriage because one partner has been uh, converted. Now, my original plan was to 
work all the way through this passage and try to cover everything together today. That's not going to happen. Uh, so next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll come back and we'll ask the question, what, what on earth does Paul mean that the unbelieving's partner and the children are holy on account of uh, one spouse embracing the gospel? Okay, we'll come back and we'll think about that next week in more detail. Um, but let's stay with the train of thought for today and what Paul is saying here about marriage and divorce. He's saying so long as the unbelieving spouse wants to remain married, the believer should not divorce. Now, of course, that is qualified by everything we've been talking about, uh, about marriage these last two weeks. But if by God's common grace they are committed to the marriage, remain married, Paul is saying. But verse 15 then, if the unbeliever separates, let it be. Let it be so. You are not enslaved. You're free from the marriage. You're free to divorce without sin. And I think that entails a right to remarry uh, because the former marriage has been dissolved by the divorce, just as would be the case with sexual immorality or desertion in other forms. After all, Paul says, God has called you to peace. And sometimes, sometimes the path of peace in a situation like this is to allow for divorce. But then finally, I just want you to notice, notice the word of hope that Paul gives to spouses who remain married to an unbeliever. He ends with a note of hope, even in a less than ideal situation, even when faith in Jesus has, has introduced new tensions in the relationship. There's hope. Look at verse 16. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, he's not placing the obligation to convert your spouse upon you. Only God can do that. But he, he is saying, how do, who knows? Maybe, maybe your devotion to Christ, your, your newfound, profound peace and joy in the Lord, your security in the midst of all kinds of uncertainty, your gentleness and your kindness and your patience and so forth toward your unbelieving spouse, your witness to the transforming power of divine grace. Maybe God will use it to win your spouse to Christ. So when you find yourself in a difficult marriage, when Christ is not shared between the two of you, 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 can, you can so cling to Christ that your unbelieving spouse will have to see that for you, Jesus Christ is enough. Jesus Christ is enough. And by the grace of God, uh, you, you are to live in such a way that as they look at you, your, your unbelieving spouse will be unable to deny the transforming power of the gospel of grace. So there's hope through the gospel. Now I know what time it is. <clears throat> so there's hope through the, the gospel, even in hard marriages. And, and so today, friends, today, there's, a, there's, there's two words. Let's, let's wrap up here. There's, there's a word to two different groups of people who I'm sure are represented in some way here among us. There's a word to those who, ex, who experience neglect or abuse within marriage. God cares. He 
has not consigned you to a life of neglect and harm and cruelty. He will not tolerate such radical distortion of the institution of marriage. You're free. And there's a word to those who are in unequal marriages. By the grace of God, you can be a faithful follower of Jesus right where you are. And who knows? Who knows? Perhaps by God's grace on display in your life, at work in your life, your spouse may also be brought to faith in Christ. There is hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we thank you for the way that your word speaks to the issues of life. Help us to submit our minds, our hearts, our lives to the teaching of your word. We thank you that you are a God who, who cares for and sees the vulnerable and the oppressed. We, we pray that your transforming grace would indeed be evident in our lives. And we pray that the gospel would be a, a change agent within our homes so that our unbelieving spouse or children may be brought to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do this, we ask, for the honor of your name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.